Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. Good. Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here um, on the rainy day. I find often in Brisbane, if it's raining, we all just stop doing our things. So it's good to see you here. <laughs> um, great. Um, Anyone in need of a biology lesson this morning? Um, I thought we'd just brush up on our food chain knowledge. So National Geographic defines a food chain as someone who um, describes who eats who in the wild. Every living thing from one-celled algae to giant blue whales needs food to survive. For example, All living things in the food chain are grouped into categories in the trophic levels or um, the ecological pyramid. The main groups are producers and consumers. The producers being the organisms in the food chain that produce its own energy and nutrients, such as plants or one-celled organisms. Consumers are the secondary and the third trophic levels and they depend on producers or other consumers for food, nutrition, and energy. The primary consumers are usually herbivores, such as deers, turtles, and birds. Then the tertiary consumers eat the secondary consumers. And there may be many levels before they reach the top predator in the chain. And we all know the impact if one link in the food chain is missing. It throws everything out, and that is called a trophic cascade. An example of this in recent history is what's happened in the Yellowstone National Park in the States. In the 1800s, as westward expansion brought in all their new livestock, they cleared land for all their agricultural business. When they did this, it killed the prey base for the grey wolves and the wolves began eating all the livestock of the farmers. So rightly so, the farmers thought that it was right to bring this breed to extinction um, in the hope that they would still have an income and business. Unfortunately, now biologists know the impact that that has had on that particular ecosystem. In that time, the number of deers has exploded because there was no one to hunt them, and despite human efforts to control them, the deer had reduced the vegetation to almost nothing in the national park. As deer and elk had no pressure of a predator, their populations grew and two things happened. It pushed the Yellowstone's capacity to extreme levels and in winter they didn't have to move around so they heavily grazed on one particular tree, on three particular trees, willow, aspen and cottonwood plants. This made it tough for beavers to live, who would need the willow tree to build their little homes, until only one small beaver colony um, remained for a long time. And because of this imbalance, it either caused animals to stay and dominate or them to move away and try somewhere else. So why this particular biology lesson today? (laughs) In the human life, just to clarify, not the human food chain. We can see this, um, this thing happening as well in today. If one generation is missing, it throws everything else out. A baby is born. The parents are the primary giver to the baby. 
The grandparents are available in their retirement to babysit the child. The children grow up, take care of the grandparents, and the parents and brothers and sisters all are in the working force. Perhaps say the children grew up with absent parents. The children then takes on the role of being a parent, and that small thing just cascades down, and the whole cycle of a family of generations seems like something went wrong. The reality is that young people are a missing demographic in the Australian church. This is quite a dire situation if we think of it in the lens of a food chain, of nature. In the church, young people bring a sense of youthfulness and zeal and a, a, new, a new and young faith that often encourages those who've been Christian for a while. But practically speaking, young adults are in their university days where they have a lot of free time. So they're able to run the youth group and they're able to serve with the kids. If the young adults aren't present, you see this chain happen where the youth ministries and the kids' ministries aren't being able to run because the young adults aren't there and they are the ones who are meant to have that role. So how does the missing link affect everything else? And here I am standing in the middle of that generation and I'm asking what has gone wrong. And the answer is I don't know. Maybe it's a big issue and I think it is. Too much to tackle today. But it burdens me that my whole generation, there's only few who know God as their creator. And I know so many of us, sorry, I know so many of us are faced with young people in our lives who have turned away from God or even turned away from you. And I know a lot of you give every effort into restoring these relationships. And this is a hard battle in the Australian context that we face here. And it's not to be denied amidst all the conflict in the rest of the churches and in the rest of the world. But this is something that we face and that we're responsible for today. It would almost be selfish to say that the, jeopardy, the church is at jeopardy, but I think it will go further than that, that Australia, in our context, is at jeopardy if we don't see a generation coming up not knowing the Lord. A lot of the content and ideas that I'll share today come from Ian Hussey's new book that he wrote alongside his colleague Anne Close. And the book is called Vital, an exercise in practical theology Australian church, churches, so it's incredibly relevant, and they're reflected on a lot of research that has come out in the recent years. They devise three main groups of young people who have been lost to the church. The first group is the nomads. They walk away from the church engagement, but still consider themselves Christians. The second grouping they've named the prodigals. They lose their faith, but still describe and describe themselves as no longer Christian. The third they've titled Exiles. They are still invested in their Christian faith, but feel stuck or lost between culture and the church. But in thinking about this issue in its entirety, 
It's hard to reconcile it against Jesus' priority of children in the kingdom of God. For me particularly, Matthew 18 verse 6 is so striking. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. And William Strange writes this um, very profound quote. What happens to a child and to a child's faith is a matter of great consequence to those who are in the kingdom of God. In God's sight, their worth cannot be exaggerated. This is the extent of the situation. This is the crisis that we face here in the Australian church. And how do we reconcile this against what Jesus is teaching about children in the kingdom of God? So I think many historians have thought in the past, where does the responsibility lie? Is it a blaming game? It should be the parents. It should be the church. And today I wanted to bring those, both of those things into light and ultimately come at a conclusion that it is a partnership between the church and the parents. The German reformer Martin Luther wrote, most certainly father and mother are apostles, bishops and priests to their children for it is they who acquaint them with the gospel. In Deuteronomy 6, back in the Old Testament, we hear then that God has given out um, instruction for how to raise a child in the family. Deuteronomy 6 reads, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be one, to be on your heart. Impress them on your children, it says. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your house and on your gates. Which is interesting, the, the, um, the key verbs and the key instructions that stand out is impress them. In the same way here that the, the Greek tries to use that word as the way that a craftsman would impress um, something on something that they're making. That is an effort, is an impressing, that there is a sense of engraving something. Wouldn't that be a privilege to engrave your faith on a child? But it also complements that um, strict impression of the faith with the walking along, and the discipleship that happens in everyday life. And we see that great example in Christ as he prioritises his teaching, but often all of that is learnt on the way. So that can be one perspective and one Bible passage that suggests the parents do have a vital role in the faith of their children. But what does it say about the responsibility relying perhaps on the Sunday school teacher, perhaps on me? Well, we do see it very well modelled throughout the scriptures of Paul taking responsibility for Timothy. We see Elijah encouraging Elisha. 
and most of all Moses encouraging Joshua. So we do see that there is someone outside of their family unit who is key in forming them in the image of God. And we can read the key passage here from Psalm 78, verse 1 to 8, where the psalmist takes the responsibility to proclaim the history of redemption to the generations. And it reads, Hear my people, um, my people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from of old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants, and we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and his wonders that he has done. He decreed statues for Jacob and established the law of Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born. They t- and they, in turn, would tell their children. Then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commandments. Thus it suggests that it's the responsibility of the whole community, generation to generation, passing on this faith. Perhaps we've seen the pendulum swing too far in one direction throughout history. There's been a few parachurch movements that have come up in recent years, such as um, even Sunday School, Christian Endeavour, Youth for Christ, fruitful programs in the Australian context. But some have suggested that that's produced an outsourcing of discipleship for children of the church, which in a way distorts the biblical model of the parent encouraging the child in their faith. So where do we sit? Where do we sit with the reality of life that this is never going to be perfect? That we can read these suggestions and these commandments and we feel a sense of burden of I should have done more. What am I doing? I've let my child down. I'm not giving enough to the youth. How do we sit with those thoughts that come up and the reality that we've read just now? And I suggest that it's best to work as a partnership partnership between the parents and the church, between the parents and the youth pastor, between the parents and Chris Brown, between the parents and Jackie, between the parents and Beck. Everyone is responsible for the children in our care in this church. So how does that work, the partnership between the church and the family? And why is that key in retaining this generation that seems to have walked away from the church? Well, people suggest that young people are more likely to stay in the faith and in the church if they feel a sense of commitment to relationships. So with that, church and parents must be active partners to one another for the benefit of the young person to come to the Lord. If a, ch- if a child has a healthy relationship with their parent, they're more likely to adopt their faith. And as a church, we can help parents have good, healthy relationships with their kids. And the parents can be that person like Paul was to Timothy, like Elijah was to Elisha, 
like Moses was to Joshua, that person that's removed from their family but sets the same example. Therefore, the application for the church, for all of us here. So this is a huge issue, but we must start somewhere. And I know it's good that we have initiatives of reaching your front line, and we have, and I, we did the Alpha course last year, but as I was preparing for this sermon and reading all the material, there's so many young people in our church that don't know or haven't committed their life to God yet. So they are the ones that we can easily, they're right at our fingertips. They're the people that we should be praying for, thinking about. And it's a new year. Maybe your priorities have shifted. Is there someone, is there one young person that you feel you could, you could, you feel called to in some way? And only you can know. But the children of church members represent the ripe fruit of the harvest. If we're thinking five years' time, we have Lucas, who will probably be in year, he'll probably be graduated. He'll be in university. He'll be a young adult here. And then we have Lily, who will be in middle school, near high school. So if we look in the future, these young children are going to be our young adults in a few years. How now can we be thinking of that and making sure that they have relationships that they feel connected to, not only for the sake of our church, but but for the sake of their faith as well. Because the decisions that people make between the ages of 14 to 21 are life-defining. If a young person makes a decision to follow Christ in those early years, they have their entire life ahead of them. They can make decisions about what university course they want to make with the guidance of God. They can make decisions of of who they'll date or where they'll live with the guidance of God. A whole life can be shaped by following Jesus if in these formative years they come to the Lord. So these people are our responsibility. They're our responsibility. If we want to see a change, they are our responsibility. For even secular research says community provides an important relational environment. It promotes belonging, a sense of identity and learning, and it supports active participation in the world, a continuity of learning, and supports children and families to have relationships with each other. So people have seen this play out in other contexts and know the importance of community and intergenerational relationships. Isn't this almost the best role? You always hear of the fun auntie being able to take the kids for a movie date and then give the kids back at the end of the day. (laughs) Or if you've got a newborn, you babysit for a few hours and nappy change, you're like, oh, it's okay, you have it now. (laughs) Isn't that the best opportunity? You get to be involved in someone's life, partnership with the parents. As this uh, researcher Carrie Newhoff says, that this generation, Gen Z, age 11 to 26 will start to reshape the church. As we come in and become more young adults, things will change. So who can you see? Can you see baby Daniel even? Jonah, Valerie, Chen, Lily, Jess, Reuben, 
and even myself, Sam and Shafiq and all the young adults that pass by too. And for the parents, this stood out for me. Children are more likely to adopt the faith modelled by their parents. NCLS research summarises that Australians who identify with spirituality or religion in some way are um, committed to the religion of their parents that they brought, were brought up in. 58% of Australian church attenders aged 15 to 29 nominated their mother, and 56 nominated their father as a person who showed them what faith was about. And only youth group leaders and friends who were influential within church said that it was 25% their friends and 24% other people in their lives. Over the holidays, I love to watch a TV series, and I've just recently finished Virgin River, which is a show set in America. And it's about this lady, she escapes LA and goes to this quiet town which is called Virgin River and there she establishes a new life for herself. But there's also this young character, Lizzie. She's probably 20. She's graduated. Um, she's looking for a gap year. She's had a run-in with her parents, so she's trying to escape them too and lives with her grandma out in this country town. She falls in love and unexpectedly falls pregnant. But in the midst of that pregnancy, she finds herself, all the aunties, all the grandmas, all the brothers and sisters support her. And she forms this beautiful relationship with this character, Hope. As Lizzie is trying to understand how she can break the news to her mum, Lizzie, uh, Hope supports her but Lizzie throws this comment that we've all heard before, it takes a village to raise a child. Hope says, yes, it does, but Lizzie, you're still going to need your mother. It takes a village to raise a child, but you're still going to need your mother. I don't know why that comment has stayed with me since I watched that episode, but I think it is entirely true. We as a village can raise young people, but they need their parents. Even if your parents aren't religious, you still need your parents. Even if you don't have any children of your own, you can still be a parent to some. It takes a church to disciple a child, but they still need their parents. I remember in my teenage years, going through all of the emotions as a 16-year-old girl, <laughs> and I remember I would get overwhelmed often, and I often, often, so many times, I would be upset and crying, but my dad would somehow know, <laughs> and he would sit me down, and he would teach me to pray, and in those moments, he taught me how to cast my anxiety on the Lord. And in those moments, he would teach me that God loved me and foundational understandings of God's heart in those teenage years that were so formative for me. And I feel blessed to have the parents that I do, that they have been the model of faith for me. 
So I encourage you, parents, that I'm with you and the whole church is supporting you. In saying that, there are a few practical things, a few suggestions I hope I can make to you to help you with your family life. I have these cards that Queensland Baptist has um, a new resource that they've produced. I flicked through it and it's, it's really, really good. It has a few cards and you just read one a week. And in it, it has, um, teaches you all how to read the Bible together. It teaches you what fasting is. It teaches you how to be creative. Um, I have two copies here if you'd like some. And I can order more. So if you'd like to try free trial today. <laughs> um, but in regards to that, there's a few more suggestions here. Simply eating together as a family. Showing your children that hospitality is important. Having family conversations about faith. I know they're hard to bring up. Talking about faith, religious issues, questions and doubt. Even ritualising important family moments or milestone experiences. Say perhaps when your child chooses to be baptised, if every year you go out for dinner or just have a moment to remember that that was the day you were baptised a year ago. Even such as celebrating family holidays. I know we don't do Thanksgiving in Australia, but that is a beautiful um, holiday that we can celebrate as a family. Being involved in the faith community, praying together and encouraging young people to pray personally. I know these all seem huge, but maybe just try one. One for this month and then try another one next month. Start small and I hope that you'll be encouraged by a small amount of change in your child. But all things said and done, I think we know that we can only do so much in our own strength. That after everything I've said today, I feel like, where do we begin? But simply, we must ask God to restore this generation. If we have any hope of seeing change in this church, or in the greater Australian context, we must ask God to restore this generation. And I truly believe if we see this generation restored, we will see a ripple effect, the tropic cascade. As soon as the wolves arrived back into the national park in 1995, first they killed deer, but more significantly, they radically changed the behavior of deer. Deer started to avoid certain parts of the park where they could be trapped easily, particularly valleys and gorges. And immediately those places began to regenerate. In fact, some of the trees quadrupled in six years. Bare valley sides began to flourish. Birds migrated back. Beavers moved in. Their dams created homes for other species such as otters, mud rats, fish and reptiles. The wolves began to eat coyotes and instantly the number of rabbits and mice began to rise, which meant more hawks, weasels and foxes and more badgers lived in the area. 
Bears would feed on the wolves' leftovers, also eating the berries that were fruiting on the trees. And what is really interesting is that the wolves began to change the behavior of the rivers. The, the rivers began, to, sorry, the deers began to meander less. So this enabled less erosion. It gave time for the rivers to, for the plants and shrubs to stabilize the rivers again. The regenerating forests stabilized the banks and they would collapse less. And similarly, the vegetation and the, everything began to stabilize and return back to its original order before the wolves were extinct. The reintroduction of wolves continues to astonish biologists with the ripple of direct and indirect consequences throughout the national park. The head biologist says that the presence of the wolves triggered an un, a still unfolding cascade effect among animals and plants, one that will take decades of research to understand. It's like kicking a pebble down a mountain slope where conditions were just right that a falling pebble, pebble could trigger an entire avalanche of change. And now God reveals himself through nature, through his creation. And I find hope by looking at this story of simply what's going on in Yellowstone National Park. And I'm reminded of that verse that's, how much more will God, how much more can God do for us? We're not just mere animals to him, but we're his beloved children. If God can regenerate an entire park, how much more can he do that in this generation and in the future to come? If that is the God that we love and that we worship, I pray that this new year even, we will see the ripple effects of that change happening in our little church. And I pray that that will overflow into the world around us. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you so much that you care so greatly for us, Lord. I thank you for your model of family. God, and we ask for your help. God, we are in need, and we ask for your help, Lord. Help us to be one united front, Lord, to be a partnership for all the young people that are right here. Lord, would you grow a love in our hearts for these young people, Lord, a responsibility, a commitment to them, a commitment to seeing them, knowing you, Lord, and the redemption history being passed down to them, Lord. Help us to do that, Jesus. And we pray that you alone will build your church. In your mighty, precious name, Jesus, we pray and ask all of these things. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.